Yasas. Welcome to Greek Like Me, the podcast about all things Greek for Greeks, Hellenophiles, and anybody who's interested in learning about other cultures. I'm your host, Pamela Darities Wood. Email us at stealthgreek at gmail.com to share comments, questions, and stories about Greeks, Greekness, or your own ethnic background. First off, mea culpa. I mispronounced the name of Greek Prime Minister Metaxas on the Ojide episode. Sometimes I deliberately use English language pronunciation of Greek words or names because they're more easily identifiable in the wider world. Sometimes I'm just tripping over my tongue or I am mispronouncing things. My Greek is etsi ke etsi, ala prospatho. Greece has always been a land of gods and monsters. Greek tales of bloodsuckers and nightwalkers have influenced the way the Western world sees and understands vampires. Early forms of vampires existed in India, parts of Malaysia, and elsewhere. I'm not claiming Greeks invented them. Greeks invented everything. No. But it was the influence of Greek myths and superstitions on the Greek-obsessed Europeans and their literature that gave us the vampires, and to some extent the zombies we know today. So if you're uncomfortable with vampires, zombies, and demons, some occasionally gruesome violence, and disturbing stories, especially those involving infants, we'll understand if you want to be back up next week. For the rest of you, let's dive into our tales of Greek man-eaters, murder, and mayhem. In ancient times, when gods walked the earth in disguise, cursing kingdoms with grotesque monsters, or transforming humans who displeased them into hideous beasts, the impusa terrorized the dark roads and alleyways of Greek towns and villages. They were shape-shifting demons, daughters of Ekati, goddess of magic, ghosts, and necromancy. In their natural form, they were phantoms with flaming red hair. One leg, the leg of a donkey or goat, symbolizing lechery and cruelty. The other, made of brass, was said to be controlled by Ekati. They could disguise themselves as female dogs or cows, to avoid detection, maybe, but they took the form of beautiful women when they fed. And Impuza waited along dark roads at night until a healthy young man happened by alone, then transformed itself into an irresistibly beautiful young woman, a maiden usually, too innocent to arouse suspicion, but sensuous enough to distract. The Impuza would draw him away somewhere remote where she seduced him, they would lie with them, wrote Robert Graves in his epic collection, The Greek Myths, sucking their vital forces until they died. He called them greedily seductive female demons. In the throes of passion, they would suddenly attack and feast, sometimes even eating the flesh of their victims. Philostratos, a second century writer, described them as wanton sexual beings, saying, Empusa, Desire indeed the pleasures of love, yet more they do desire human flesh, and use the pleasure of human flesh to decoy those on whom they will feast. Often they would lure the men into marriage first and devour them on the wedding night. John Cuthbert Lawson was a Cambridge lecturer who traveled throughout rural Greece talking to villagers and studying ancient manuscripts. In 1910, he wrote Modern Greek Folklore and Ancient Greek Religion, A Study in Survivals, it's fascinating. And he's patronizing, sure, but he shares some interesting regional folklore. Like the story of an impusa originally recorded by a first century Algerian writer and traveler, Apuleos. 
a young man named Socrates had toyed with the heart of a beautiful young woman. As Socrates and his friend went walking one night, they were waylaid by two empusa, one of them the woman who'd offer her love to him. They tore out his heart in front of his friend and no doubt feasted on it. If Socrates or his friend had been past thinkers, according to Graves, the empusse could have been chased off by throwing insults at them, at the sound of which they flee shrieking. Socrates' attacker may have been a, an empusa, or it may have been a lamia. Some writers use their names almost interchangeably, along with Galudes. The original tale of the lamia traces back to the heartbreak of a Libyan queen named lamia. She was beautiful and powerful, and Zeus, king of the gods, couldn't resist her. Lamia had many children by Zeus, but Hera, his wife, found out about them. Jealous and vindictive, Hera spent much of her time tracking down and trying to destroy Zeus's many children by other women. As each child was born to Lamia, it was abducted and murdered by the goddess. Finally, Lamia went mad with grief. She disappeared into a cave where she lived ever after, stealing out to snatch the newborns of other women and killing them by sucking their blood. Because of this, Lamia turned into a hideous, deformed beast, half-grotesque woman, half-serpent. Graves said later she joined the empusse, lying with young men and sucking their blood while they slept. Like their namesake, the demons Lamia were hideous monsters, described as gigantic, coarse-looking women with the legs and tail of a reptile. Lawson describes them as having the foot of a mule on one side and the other bronze. J. Gordon Melton in Encyclopedia of the Undead, the vampire book, describes them as having one foot of a goat and one of brass with a serpent's tail. There seems to be an eventual melding of the Empusa and Lamia stories. 5th century BCE playwright Aristophanes called the Lamia kindred of the Empusa. They were shapeshifters, but unlike the Empusa, Lamia were gluttonous, filthy, stupid creatures. They mated with dragons, which is kind of cool. They were terrible slobs, so terrible there's a Greek proverb, tis Lamias ta saromata, uh, which is insulting someone's housekeeping by comparing it to the Lamia. They're so dim, according to Lawson, they make bread by putting the dough in a cold oven and piling fire on top of it. They feed hay to their dogs and their horses. They feed animal bones. Their weaknesses are their honesty and showing gratitude to anyone who helps them. Apparently insulting them doesn't work. Where the Empusas seem to be mostly relegated to Greek mythology with occasional stories of doomed young men, the Lamia were out and about causing mayhem from ancient Greece right through more modern times. Lawson and Melton both collected many tales of the Lamia in their respective books. Melton tells a story recorded by Philostratos in the fourth book of his series on the life of philosopher and teacher Apollonios. Apollonios had a student named Menippus, who saw the apparition of a beautiful, richly dressed young woman. The specter told Menippus how he could find her. The woman was exactly where the apparition had promised she'd be, and he fell in love with her at once. He told Apollonios about her, that he was considering asking her to be his wife. Apollonius immediately warned him he was being hunted by a serpent. He asked to meet his student's lover, and afterwards told him, this fine bride is an empusa. They are devoted to the delights of Aphrodite. She would sexually pleasure him until he dropped his guard and married her, and then she would devour him. Menippus didn't want to believe him, so Apollonius confronted her, 
and because the murderous Lamia is always truthful, she finally admitted her habit of feeding upon young and beautiful bodies because their blood is pure and strong. Milton says Greece is one of the oldest sources for the contemporary vampire legend. And the story of Menippus reminded me of nearly every vampire story I've watched, from Buffy the Vampire Slayer to Vampire Diaries and the Twilight movies. Beautiful, seductive creatures who are in reality monsters that seduce and feed on young, attractive humans. Apelios wrote about Lamia in his novel, The Golden Ass, the only ancient Latin novel to survive in its entirety. In it, Apelios tells the story of a Lamia whose catch of the day had escaped. The young man saw her true intention, or perhaps her true shape, before she attacked and took off. She ran him down, killing him by stabbing him in the neck with her sword. She drank all of his blood and then cut out his heart. There's no escaping the Lamia. There's an old Athenian tale of a Lamia named Moro, which means fool, one of my mother's favorite endearments for her children. Moro was a very wealthy uh, woman and wore a beautiful, expensive headdress. Lawson says she developed a habit of walking around at night, grabbing lone men in their arms and crushing them till they roared like bulls. We can assume she then fed on them. Those who escaped, so there is escape, were the ones wise enough to snatch off her headdress. To get it back, she would promise the cheeky victim his life and her riches, and she always kept her word. In 1910, Lawson suspected nine out of 10 Greek peasants only knew Lamia as those that fed on human flesh and favored newborns as their prey. If a baby died suddenly, it was, she was said to be strangled by Lamia. He was in Greece around that time and found Lamia were also used as boogeymen boogie women, by mothers to frighten misbehaving children, which Greek mamas have been doing for 2,000 years. But even though as time went on, they were mostly bugaboos, there continued to be reports of Lamia appearing and threatening villagers. Lawson visited a village in Attica where a peasant shot a six-foot-tall Lamia. The villagers carried the body out to a plain. No grass would grow where her blood had dripped. Striyes are another form of demon bloodsucker that appear over and over again throughout Greece. They were night-flying demons who killed infants by sucking their blood. Infant mortality was an issue throughout history, and striyes were something to blame for the loss of a child. Striyes transformed themselves into birds of prey or other animals. Lawson writes, They're seen at night passing through the air. Locked doors cannot stop them. Children who survived their attacks were weakened and sickly for the rest of their lives. 11th century Greek Orthodox monk Michael Pselos writes it was believed that old women had the power to grow wings and settled unseen upon infants, whom it's alleged they suck until they exhaust all the humors in them. In medieval times, humors were the fluids believed to circulate through the body, blood, black bile, yellow bile, and phlegm. To have good health, the humors had to be in balance. Why bloodletting was a thing for centuries. Leo Latios was a 16th century Greek scholar and theologian born on the island of Chios. He later became keeper of the Vatican Library and wrote at length about striyes. He claimed all striyes were old women that poverty and misery had driven into a contract with the devil. This is why you must take good care of your yaya. 
by medieval times, all of these demons, once seen as blighted humans suffering the punishment of the gods, were attributed to the work of the devil. The Strias usually didn't bother much with men. Women and children were easier prey and suffered greatly from the attacks of these demons from their breath alone, says Alatios, which can cause insanity or even death. Yikes. Alatios tells the story of Strias in Messinias, the region of the Peloponnesos Mayaya came from. And I wonder if she had these stories. A man traveling through the countryside stopped at the home of a friend to stay the night. His friend was married and his mother-in-law lived with them. The traveler woke at midnight, hearing the voices of the two women arguing in the next room, debating whether to eat the traveler or the husband. They decided they'd choose the meteor of the two, based on the weight of each victim's foot compared to the other. They snuck into the room where the men were sleeping. The traveler only pretended to sleep, so when the women grabbed at his foot, he lifted it up so it would seem light. Then they grabbed the husband's foot, which was heavy as he slept. Immediately, the women ripped open the homeowner's chest and pulled out his liver and other organs and threw them on the hot ashes of the hearth to cook. Then they remembered they were out of wine, because who wants to eat their husband's organs without a nice Merlot? The women turned into winged creatures and flew off to the wine shop to get something to go with their meal. Which begs the question, did Strias pay for their wine? While they were gone, the traveler snatched his friend's organs off of the hearth and hid them in a bag. He tossed animal dung onto the hearth in its place. The Strias returned and ate roasted animal feces with their wine and didn't notice. The next day, the two friends fled the house. The host still alive, his organs returned to their proper place. He was pale without scars to show what he'd been through. The traveler cared for his friend, and when he recovered, the two returned to the home to kill the Stidias. I have so many questions. The weirdest story was the Stidia who was an infant princess. This centuries-old story comes from the beautiful island of Dinos. Every day, the servants of the local king discovered one of the king's horses had been killed and devoured during the night. Finally, the king's three sons decided to take turns on watch to see what was killing the animals. When the youngest prince took his turn at watch, he heard a noise and saw a strange cloud hovering over the horses. He fired an arrow into the cloud and it dissipated to reveal his baby sister, who maybe flew off back to her crib, Alatios doesn't say. But the next morning, the prince went to the room of the infant princess, where she lay in her crib. He saw the mark of his arrow on her, proof that she was the demon killing the horses. He was afraid to tell his father the truth, but not his mother, because the two of them ran away. The child remained without the king suspecting anything, and she eventually ate all of the people in the village. Lawson says, a child can indeed enjoy the title of Striya. Only an old woman can possess the right. I don't know what that means. It doesn't explain why or how a well-fed royal baby would make a contract with the devil, or how the heck else it became a shape-shifting demon. But Lawson says there were several other enfants terribles preying on Greeks. Flying Greek babies that sucked the life out of you. Greeks were plagued by demons. Alatios was considered the chief authority of Galudes, yet another child-devouring demon. 
I suppose children were very much at risk in both ancient and medieval times, but it's disturbing. There are so many stories involving them, and I left out the worst. Yet I grew up with a mother telling me dead baby stories and later dead teenager stories all the time to keep me in line. Is this where that came from? I always thought she was just a little wacky. Gelo is the name of a creature written about in the 8th century who is deemed responsible for the deaths of infants who wasted away. Early accounts also refer to them being devoured, disappearing completely. The yellow doesn't just shape shift into a beautiful woman or flying creature. It can become many things, which is extremely freaky. The most famous story of a yellow appeared in Lawson's book and in an 1881 journal called Folklore. It follows the adventures of two saints, brothers Cicinios and Saint Cinderoas, and their battle with a yellow. These are real saints of the Orthodox Church, and their story would make a great action-adventure film or horror movie. Cicinios and Sinodores were with the army fighting in Arabia, as saints do, and decided to visit their sister, Meliteni, who lived nearby with her seven children. But Aguelo had stolen all of her children, and when she found herself pregnant again, she built a fortified tower, stored 25 years of food in it, and shut herself in with two handmaids. When her brothers arrived, she refused to let them in. She'd just given birth and feared for her child. The brothers called out from the gate, open unto us, for we are the angels of the Lord. So she let them in. But at the same time, the evil spirit changed itself into a clod of earth and fastened itself to the hoof of one of their horses. In the middle of the night, it took the infant. The saints comforted their distraught sister and prayed to God for power over the demon. An angel brought the message they were good to go, and they rode off on the trail of the yellow, asking everyone they came across if they'd seen it and everything. They asked a willow tree, or in some cases, a pine tree. And when the tree denied seeing the ghetto, they cursed it so that it would never yield fruit. They also cursed an uncooperative bramble. Finally, they came upon an olive tree. From E. Legrand's Bibliothèque Grec Volière, Volume 2, we learn the olive tree told them, ye saints of the Lord, continue on your journey, for it is gone to the shore of the sea. The saints blessed the olive tree, saying, May thy fruit be rich, saints be lit up by it, and kings and poor rejoice in it. And even today, we do indeed light up our saints with it. When the saints reached the shore, the yellow saw them and turned herself into a fish. The saints turned themselves into fishermen and caught her. But she turned into a swallow and flew away. The saints turned into hawks and chased her. Finally, she changed herself into a goat's hair and hid herself in the beard of the local king. The saints greeted the king and asked him for a favor. And since they were men of God, the king said, whatever you wish. So they plucked the goat hair out of the king's beard. The ghetto changed into a woman and the saints grabbed her by the hair of her head, threw her on the ground and beat her, shouting at her to stop killing Christian babies or any babies, how about? The saints said they would stop beating her and let her live if she promised by oath to return the children of Meliteni. The Gelo said she returned the sisters' babies if they first brought up into the palms of their hands the milk they'd suckled from their mother's breast, which is an odd request. Ticinios and Sinodores prayed to God and brought up the milk into their hands. The monster, in turn, vomited up Meliteni's children. 
On threat of death, the ghetto told the saints that if they wrote down her twelve and a half names and placed the paper in an amulet, she could not enter whatever home contained it. Lawson claims there's a cure from an attack, originally from Amorgos, the easternmost of the Kikladis Islands. If a child isn't fatally injured by the ghetto, the mother must send for a priest to curse the demon and then scratch the child with her nails. If that doesn't work, the mother has to go to the shore at sunset, pick out 40 round stones, which have been washed in by 40 different waves, then boil them in vinegar. When the rooster crows, the demon will disappear and leave the child safe and well. I was raised that vinegar could do almost anything. Unlike the empusa, la mia estrilla and geludes, who mostly faded out of public consciousness and time, the belief in revenants, the undead or resurrected dead, was widespread in Greece well into the middle of the 20th century. Unlike the earlier demons who were all female, Vrikolakes were usually men. But the original Vrikolakes were not evil or something to be feared. They were often people who died with unfinished business. Phlegon, a Greek writer of the second century, says Vrikolakes returned by divine consent for a specific purpose. Melton says the ancient Greek revenant was essentially benign and returned primarily to complete some unfinished family business. There's a story from Santorini about a shoemaker named Alexandros who became a Vrikolakas. After he died, he visited his home regularly, fixing his children's shoes whenever they needed it, fetching water from the village cistern and chopping wood for the family. This didn't bother the family at all. He was making sure they were taken care of. But it scared the neighbors, so they got together, dug up the body, and burned it. Alexandros disappeared. In a rare story of a female Vricolacas, Flagon tells the story of Philidion, a young woman seen by the family servants going into the guest room of a visitor named Matsates six months after she died. Her parents questioned their guest the next morning. He showed them a ring his visitor had given him and a breastband she left behind something women wore under their clothes. So we can guess what the visits were about. The parents recognized both items as personal effects of their deceased daughter. That night, they entered the guest room and saw Philinion. She reproached them for interrupting her visits and told them she'd been granted three nights with him. Then she returned to her grave and was never seen again. Fagan records he was a village official at the time, investigating the villagers' complaints about Philinion wandering around. He opened the grave and found the gifts Matsates had given her, but not the body. The villagers were advised to burn the body whenever it showed up, and we can assume they did. A Jesuit priest called Father Francois Richard reported during the 17th century that on Amorgos, Vricolacas were seen day and night, sometimes, quote, five or six together in a field, feeding, apparently, on green beans. Everybody loves a little fasolakia, even the undead. Apparently, they weren't bothering anybody, so nobody bothered them. But sometimes the Vricolacas came to exact revenge on someone who had wronged him or his family, not violence for the sake of violence. Father Richard tells the story of Yadetis Anapliotis, a moneylender from Santorini, which, by the way, is reportedly a hotbed of Vricolacas. Yanetis repented of his evil ways a year before he died and started to make what amends he could. Before he died, he instructed his wife to pay back everything left that he owed. But after he died, 
she refused to pay back what Father Richard called just claims. Yannetus reappeared to harass his wife and her relatives and the rest of the village. He woke up priests in the morning telling them it was time for matins. He pulled the covers off of sleeping villagers and shook their beds so violently he was blamed for a death. He opened the taps of wine barrels, letting the wine run out onto the floor. This was a step too far. An exorcism was performed, but didn't work. Finally, Father Richard told the wife she must pay off all of the debts. After she did this, Yanetis returned to his grave, where he was exhumed by local Greek priests who exorcised the corpse a second time, even though it had already begun to decompose, the first sign of the end of the Ricolacas. But the priests hacked him to pieces and reburied him elsewhere just to make sure. Yanetis never returned, which Father Richard credits to the debt repayments, not the hacking. Soon, Vericolakas became more malevolent. Where the early Christian church had forbidden belief in them at all, calling them foolish superstition, they soon found themselves coming up against a resilient fear of the undead. This led the Greek Orthodox Church to formally declare both the reasons a person can become undead and the steps to be taken to be rid of them, taking control of the story they couldn't stamp out and using it to keep people in line. Here are the reasons a church gave for why people become vampires. One, the person who died was excommunicated. So don't do things to make the bishop mad to excommunicate you. Two, buried without proper church rites. Three, died a violent death or suicide, which seems totally unfair. Haven't they suffered enough? For the suicides, the priest of the deceased could intervene for them if there were extenuating circumstances. But really, if someone suffered so much in life, why make them undead? Later, they added stillborn children, which is just obnoxious. Number five, those born or conceived on church feast days. Okay, we're not supposed to have nookie on fast days or even on the feast day, but what's wrong with being born on a feast day? Why wouldn't that be a blessing? But anyone born during this forbidden period was treated with hostility, according to Melton. Parents worried these children would grow up to hurt their brothers and sisters. This is so seriously messed up. I was supposed to be born on Christmas. I was over a week late. I wonder about one of my mother's elderly illiterate aunties by marriage from a remote Coriol and how she would have behaved if I'd been born on time. Disturbing. Other reasons for becoming a bricolacas were added on later. If someone died of a murder that went unavenged, if someone died unbaptized, that's a good way to get the congregants to baptize their babies. If a person ate lamb that had been killed or injured by a wolf. If an animal jumped over the dead body before it was buried. My sister has seven cats. If she dies at home, she's going to become the undead. When a werewolf dies, it might become a bricolacas. Later on, there are even more ways one could be deemed a likely candidate for becoming undead. Which looks like it had really become a way for keeping people in line. If a person was a sinner, a prostitute, if they were unpleasant, one who committed bestiality, Turks, which is harsh. I'm guessing this one made the list during the Ottoman occupation. If you were a victim of a plague, you could become Vrikolakas. And Lawson found a very Greek reason for some to be cursed with the fate of a in an old manuscript in the church of St. Sophia in Thessaloniki. 
he who has left a command of his parents unfulfilled. Oy. Throughout the Middle Ages into modern history, Vricolacas became increasingly like the vampires of 20th century pop culture and less and less beings with unfinished business. They took on the early characteristics of the Empusiangaludis, drinking blood and craving flesh. Lawson says uncorrupted bodies reanimated and revisited their former life, quote, sometimes in a harmless or even kindly mood, but far more often bent on mischief and murder. Melton says little by little the vicious vampire became a more common one in Greek culture. It was bloodthirsty and wanton. Some scholars think this may have been from the eventual influence of the Slavic vampire myths. Lawson says the writings of the 17th century make it appear that during that time, some parts of Greece would seem to have been infested by these vampires. And the party island of Santorini was the Hellgate. An expression appeared to send vampires to Santorini, which was the equivalent of Coles to Newcastle or venture capitalists to Silicon Valley. According to Greek reporter, Mykonos is a breeding ground for vampires. But in the early 20th century, inhabitants of Santorini were believed to be experts at dealing with fricolekas. An account from this era ends with the bodies of suspected vampires, one each from Criti and Mykonos, being sent to Santorini to deal with. I can almost imagine Henry Cavill in four Geralt Witcher mode, standing at the Santorini port, waiting for the coffins to arrive and be dealt with. Alatios explained the physical and moral characteristics of Vricolacas that became the norm. They were evil or immoral, often excommunicated from the church. Their bodies didn't decompose, but the skin was tough and stretched tightly like the skin of a drum, which is the sound it makes when struck. Which begs the question, who's really out there hitting vampires? But at the same time, it was so swollen and distended, its joints could barely bend. Now it begins to sound a little like a zombie. Its behavior was a manic. It had long, talon-like fingernails that it used to grab its victims and tear them to pieces. Quote, This monster is said to be so destructive to men that appearing actually in daytime, even at noon, and that not only in his house but in field and high roads and enclosed vineyards, it advances upon them as they walk along and by its mere aspect without either speech or touch kills them. They were believed to bring disease and epidemics. Maybe how they killed without touching a person? Father Richard spoke of evil entering the body as the soul separates from it, animating the body to walk among us. Now the Vricolaque's most common MO was knocking on his victim's door and calling out his or her name. If the victim answered the door on the first knock, and the creature would only knock once, they would die within days, or immediately depending on who you ask. To this day, many Greeks do not answer their doors on the first knock. The Vricolacas was something to be feared by everyone. Father Richard tells of a 17th century report by the Abbey of Amorgos, a monastery, about a merchant of Patmos who went abroad on business and died there. His widow hired a boat to bring him home. On the way back, a sailor sat on the coffin and felt the body move inside. They opened the coffin and found the body intact not normal in those days before bodies were preserved. They decided the businessman had become a vricolacas, but instead of alerting the local priest, they nailed the coffin shut and handed it over to the widow to bury. The vricolacas rose and 15 people died of fright or violence from it. 
exorcism didn't do the job. So the widow and the villagers nailed the coffin back up, put it on a ship, and sent it back where it came from. But the sailors decided to take it ashore at the first uninhabited island. There are many in Greece. And they burnt the body after which it was seen no more. Why are these people nailing up vampires in coffins and shipping it around without warning anybody? Lawson says the head of a monastery in Kriti wrote in 1888, the Ricolacas runs swift as lightning, causing panic, and while it's around, making everyone who dies at that time into the undead. Quote, in a short space of time, it gets together a large and dangerous train of followers, like the walking dead. It is so bloodthirsty, it can devastate whole villages. It sounds like the walking dead. There are references to Vrikolek as killing people by sitting on them while they're sleeping, which has made some scholars think of sleep paralysis, an ailment usually accompanied by hallucinations. But how many people did that happen to? Maybe one was enough? If the person sat on by a Vrikolakas dies in his sleep, he too becomes a Vrikolakas. The only way to save a sleeper being sat upon by the undead is to fire a gun, scaring it off. The chief monk says they are afraid of firearms, and he has witnessed it. Eventually, it was believed Saturday was the only day Vericolacas rested in their graves, and so it was the only day they could be exhumed. Exorcism was always the first line of offense, causing the devil to leave the body, which then would begin to lose its color and decompose, and ultimately turn into mush. Richard says, so rapid was the decomposition of a priest's daughter that no one could remain in the church and the body was hastily interred and she was never seen again. If exorcism doesn't work, the heart must be ripped out and cut up and the body burned to ashes. But the monk from Kriti warns of fake priests offering fake remedies to, get, to rid villages of the undead for a price. An odd report of a Vericolacas comes from a French botanist visiting Mykonos in 1700. A man who had died began walking around the village making a nuisance of himself. Several attempts were made to stop him with harm remedies, but after nine days, the villagers were fed up, dug the fellow up, removed his heart, and burnt it. The trouble continued. So villagers stuck swords into the grave as sharp objects prevented vampires from rising. An Albanian visitor suggested that the swords were useless as they made the shape of the cross, which was, which was preventing the devil from leaving the body. He suggested speaking certain Turkish words over the grave, but that didn't help either. So they wound up digging up the body again and burning the whole thing. In the Eastern Orthodox Church, it was determined if the soft tissue of a body did not decay quickly once placed in the ground, it was generally considered a sign of evil that for some reason the earth would not accept it. Which made me wonder, what about saints? Aren't their bodies always strangely preserved? Melton says it's the Western church that claims saints' bodies didn't decay. And now I want to look into that. Before modern embalming, bodies started decaying pretty quickly. If someone poking around in graves because they believed they'd seen its occupant wandering around somewhere, the priest would be called to chant prayers to the Theotokos, the mother of God, and repeat the service of the dead. Greek manifestations of the Rikolakas and their precursors populated ancient Greek plays and writings like Aristophanes' play The Frogs and Sappho's writings, and they inspired generations of European writers, starting with medieval visitors and 18th and 19th century travel writers, novelists, and poets like Gote and Lord Byron, 
Kate's wrote a poem called The Lamia. 19th century short stories and novels were populated with frigolaques. Alvaro Garcia Marin says in his analysis, the son of the vampire, Greek Gothic or Gothic Greek, that the Greek frikolakes of the 16th and 17th centuries predate what would become the well-known proper Slavic vampire. He says, frikolakes have been recurring in the theological treatises, travel accounts, or books on occultism from the beginning of the 16th century. He adds, many of the first vampire fictions were actually inspired by the Greek creature. In his opinion, Dracula should have been Greek. That's okay. No, thank you. An example of what Marin is talking about can be found in the writings of visitor Martin Krauss in 1584. On Pentecost Saturday, the Turks burned a Greek dead two years before, which the crowd believed to come out of his grave at night and kill men. Witnesses claimed 15 men had died after seeing his ghost. They unburied him and saw his flesh was consumed, but his skin was intact and stuck to his bones. By this time, the Vricolekes had shifted from the bloated image Latios wrote about in the 11th century to the more wasted, but still not decayed version we recognize from later versions of vampires. I keep thinking of Nosferatu. By the 15th century, there were new methods for destroying the Vricolekes. Cornelius Agrippa, in 1531, while visiting Criti, wrote of regional vampires who would return from the dead to lie with their wives. That kind of sounds like we're back to unfinished business. But folks in this particular story still wanted to keep the undead in his grave, so Agrippa tells us, common law is that the heart could be pierced with a nail and the entire body burnt. Now the preferred method of ridding a village of the undead, freeing its soul, and allowing it to rest at last, was to open the grave on a Saturday, impale it with nails, behead it, and then cremate the body. Greek reporter details the excavation of a tomb in Lesbos dating back to the Ottomans. Archaeologists found nails placed through the neck, pelvis, and feet, pinning it to its grave. In Cyprus, there was evidence in Neolithic graves that heavy rocks had been placed on the chests of the dead, apparently to make sure they stayed put. Elenica.com says similar burial sites were found in other places across Greece. Greek reporter also shared a list of ways to prevent the Vrikolekes from exiting the grave in the first place. People suspected of being eligible for the future list of undead should be buried face down. Scythes, those sharp curved implements used for old-timey farming and carried by the Grim Reaper, should be placed near the grave preventing evil from entering the newly buried body. Maybe that's going back to the metal thing. Small crosses made of wax and pieces of pottery with the words, Jesus Christ conquers written on them and placed in the coffin will ward off evil spirits. Greek reporter compares this to the ancient Greek practice of placing coins in the mouth of the deceased to pay the toll to travel the river Styx and to ward off evil spirits. If none of this works and you want to keep the Vrikolekes away from your home in person, garlic and the evil eye talisman should do the trick. And beware of those with red hair and gray eyes. They may be Vrikolekes, as well as a direct descendant of Judas Iscariot's cursed bloodline. I was not aware Judas Iscariot had children. With the chaos that engulfed Greece throughout the 19th and into the middle of the 20th century, and the lack of a coordinated public education system at that time, there were still reports of Ricolecas up and about creating havoc in rural areas. 
Lawson refers to the writings of Paul Lucas early in the 20th century in Corfu. He was frustrated that sensible people sometimes spoke of the dead returning in daylight, entering homes and scaring folks. The villagers would immediately run to the cemetery to dig up the body, cut it up and burn it. The governor of Corfu told Lucas he'd ordered this type of action when more than 50 reasonable persons were found to testify that an undead had entered the area. The website demonology.org tells the story of a couple somewhere in rural Greece in the 1950s. They were happy until the husband lost his job and became depressed. He left home every night with a bottle to drink alone under a tree. One night, the wife decided to bring him home and went to the tree and found him hanging from it. After the funeral with the dead man buried in unconsecrated ground, the wife closed herself up inside the home and barely ventured out. Those who did see her said she looked sickly. She finally confessed to the priest that her dead husband was returning every night. The first night he knocked, saying he needed shoes. She was afraid to let him in at first, which is maybe why she didn't turn into Vricolagas. But she wound up sleeping with him nightly for months. The priest decided the dead husband would have to be destroyed for the sake of the village. They dug up the poor guy, drove a stake through his heart. Some witnesses say he moved the moment the stake entered his body. Others claimed he turned to dust. This sounds like movie stuff. The story ends with the news that the wife is pregnant. Could the wife have had a lover before her husband killed himself and claimed she slept with the undead to avoid the stigma of a child born out of wedlock? Isn't it worse to have a so-called legitimate child by a demon? There's no explanation at the end of the story or anything in the church literature I read about what happens to the offspring of a vricolacas, or if it's even possible to be the offspring of a vricolacas. I feel we've been robbed, and honestly, it sounds worse than being born on a feast day. In the 1960s, a group of Western anthropologists investigating rural parts of Greece found many reports of people becoming vricolekes because of animals jumping over their bodies before they could be buried. One suspect body was scalded with boiling water rather than be burned as a preventative measure. Lawson claims these practices began to be strongly discouraged at the turn of the 19th to 20th century as Greek education was improving and the nation was trying to modernize. He says Greeks wanted to appear civilized in the eyes of Europe, and for some reason I want to whack him with my kutala. I didn't grow up with stories of Rikolekes, but Melton says Greece stands as one of the oldest and most important centers of vampire lore. And Greece has contributed significantly to the emerging image of the modern fiction vampire. There are over a dozen words in Greek that translate to mean something like vampire. According to Encyclopedia of Vampire Mythology, Greece has more species of vampires than any other country. We haven't even touched on the Mormos, Ageludes, Kathakanas, Vorvulakas, Corinthian Lamias, or how you can tell the difference between the monsters, or maybe what sin made the person a monster according to how their body is or is not decomposing. It's different depending on what you did. If anybody grew up hearing their grandparents or aunties telling stories about any of these creatures, please drop us an email or leave a message on our Facebook or Instagram page. We'd love to hear from you. Meanwhile, stay safe and never answer the door on the first knock. Thanks for listening. Greek Like Me is a Stealth Greek production. 
This episode was researched, written, and narrated by me, your host, Pamela Deodes-Wood. Our producer, photographer, and post-production editor is Douglas John. Visit our website at stealthcreek.com for resources, photos, links, and more. Please help us get noticed so we can keep making content about Greeks and Greek culture by rating, liking, and subscribing. Find Greek Like Me on Facebook or on Instagram at greek underscore like underscore me. See you next time. Yasas. Yes,